welcome to another sermon podcast from Valley Forth Church. We are a church in Spokane Valley, Washington, and are dedicated to the mission of making, teaching, and sending disciples to the glory of God. If you like this podcast, please subscribe on Apple iTunes, Sermon Audio, or wherever you find your podcasts. Also, check out our YouTube channel for additional content at youtube.com slash Church. Now, here is a message from Pastor Joe Hirsch. come to uh, a story of great salvation today in the text, and it's encouraged my heart even as I studied it this week to know that the greatness of salvation can work in any life at any time. We're going to touch on the story of Rahab today, but we're also going to just see how it all, her wonderful story of responding to God's conviction flows in the whole story of standing by faith. So once again, I'm going to go back to Hebrews 11, and I'm going to reread verses 29 and 30, and then bring 31 in, which is Rahab's story, because they all flow together. I'll briefly review the events of the Red Sea and of Jericho, because it's, it's a narrative that, as you'll see in Rahab's life, was part of how she came to know the Lord. It's a wonderful story of faith in the moment. So let us hear again together the word of God. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they had been encircled for seven days. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. This is God's holy word. May he open its story and truth to us this morning. Father, come, move through your word in the hearts of your redeemed people to show us Christ, to show us your saving power, to show us your miraculous stand for all those that stand in faith in the hour and trust you. Show us great and mighty things from your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Well, it's Hebrews 11, and uh, it's the story that it's a series I've entitled Faith Stories. And uh, this is a collection of three in these three verses of great faith. Now, you might uh, think of great faith in the way that a lot of us do, and you may associate great faith with believing God over a great span of time. That's often the way we look at it, isn't it? For example, we think in the Old Testament scriptures about Abraham, who had to believe God for miraculous things, the birth of a miracle son and the keeping of promises that were so far off He had to believe God, particularly for the birth of Isaac, for decades, decades of silence until God worked. So Abraham is known as a man of enduring faith, faith over a great span of time. New Testament, the all-time champion of that had to be the Apostle Paul, who endured so much suffering, who went through so many perplexing times, and over the decades of his life, He was able to say as he faced certain death in 2 Timothy that I have, he said to Timothy, I have 
finished the course. I have run my race and I have kept the faith. Beautiful example of faith kept over a great span of time. And we think that's great faith. But the Bible here now tells us that there is not only greatness of faith in spans of time, there is greatness of faith in moments of crisis. And that's what these three stories are all about. And Rahab's is no exception. Great faith in a great moment can, can change and produce a great future. That's what these stories are all about. Now, we live in the same kind of spiritually challenging times that Abraham did and that Paul did because the world is still in the hands of the evil one and we face a great and supernatural opponent. And there are many times in the life of the Christian where he or she will be in a moment or a season where they have to believe God. It may not be long in time, but it is difficult in experience and we need to learn to believe God in moments that will decide our futures. And that's what these stories are all about. So this little portion of scripture and this message is for those times in your life. If you're a believer, you will be tested, won't you? He tests all of those that belong to him, the scripture says. So read into this for a possible moment in your future. Now, each of these is an example of having faith for those times when you're back is against the wall, when you have to decide to believe God. And the stories so far have shown us two things. Quick review, I promise quick. The first in verse 29 talks about the people of Israel as, as, a, as a people. And it talks about how they discovered that you can have faith when your back is against the wall of danger. Verse 29, by faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. So open your Bibles. We'll take a look at this passage, Hebrews 11. Get your Bibles either in print or digitally, and we'll walk through it again. So what I taught you last time about this, I went over the story with you, which is one of the most familiar and one of the most uh, memorable in all of Scripture. Israel had been allowed to to come out from under the slavery uh, that they experienced to the Egyptians. Pharaoh, under the punishing hand of God, had finally decided to let God's people go. And they had made their way out of Egypt and come down to the tip of the Red Sea a formidable body of water, and they were trapped between the Red Sea and Pharaoh's armies because Pharaoh, after a few days, had relented of his decision, and he came with his chariots and his armies pursuing Israel, and he was going to take them back into bondage. So the Red Sea at one side, Pharaoh's approaching armies, he could, they could see the dust of the chariots on the other. They were truly there with their back against the wall of Pharaoh's armies, not knowing what to do. It's a beautiful story, but it doesn't really contain a tremendous amount of great faith. They ended up having just enough faith to get across. In fact, at the first sign of the dust cloud of the chariots, they turned on Moses once again. And they said, is it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us out here to the wilderness to die at the edge of the Red Sea? Not people of profound faith, 
But Moses steps out and he has enough faith to inspire them to believe God. It's why it's so important for a singular leader to stand in his faith for his people. So Moses says in Exodus 14, 13, do not fear, stand for still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will accomplish for you this day. The Lord will fight for you while you keep silent. And that's exactly what happened. As Pharaoh's armies approached, God told Moses, take the staff in your hand, put it out over the waters, and I'll part the waters. And he did. They were perhaps hundreds of feet high on either side, and the people walked through the seabed by miraculous faith. They had enough faith to put their feet out and to walk all the way through and get to the other side. It's a great story. I gave you more detail last time. But they did have sufficient faith to walk into their challenge is the point of the story. Now, I gave you a sense of how that applies to us today. I remind you that I said that some Bible commentators believe there is some imagery here, that Egypt is, an Im- is a symbol of an evil, God-hating world set against the people of God seeking to doom them and dominate them and destroy them. And that Pharaoh himself may have been an image of Satan, the great power behind a lost God-hating world. That may be true. And if it is, it gives us an insight that we are still in the same situation that the people of God were in that generation. People of Christ, people of the book, people of the one God always face United opposition from a God-hating world. And if you're a believer, Jesus said in John 15, if they hated me, they will hate you. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. And so you will have times in your life when your back will be against the wall and you will have to believe God to keep you in times of spiritual opposition. And the message I gave you was the water of opposition may rise. Walk into the water. Walk into it, step into it. God will be with you and he will win and he will support you in the midst of spiritual opposition. First story, when your back is against the wall of danger. Second story in verse 30, I shared with you, had to do with Israel again, 40 years later, a new generation of Israelites. They've come into the land of Canaan, which God had promised to Abraham and to Moses and to Israel hundreds of years before. They had to take the land. And the first place that they came against, here's the story, was a fortress called Jericho, strategically placed on the eastern side of of Canaan, so that when an army came across the Jordan River, which God brought them over by miracle, by the way, Any army had to cross the Jordan. They walked through it again by miracle. But when an army massed and wanted to take Canaan, the first place they had to defeat was the fortress city of Jericho. It was a huge and difficult place to conquer. Now you got to remember the Israelites had never seen a fortress, let alone conquered one. They were completely unprepared for this. Their new leader, Moses had died. Their new leader was named Joshua. And he was getting ready to siege or put a siege up against Jericho. Well, God appears to to Joshua, the angel of the Lord appears to him 
one night and says, I know you've got your military strategies lined up. I know you're figuring out how to sharpen your swords and and get the ladders ready, but that's not how you're going to take this city. You're not going to take it in your own strength by the way of man. You're going to obey me. Joshua said, great, Lord. How do you want us to conquer the city? God said, I just want you to walk around it once a day for six days. No swords, no ladders, no big, you know, Lord of the Rings machines to throw these boulders out. I'm not going to supernaturally create all those things for you. Nothing. You're going to walk around it once a day, every day for six days, and then go home. The seventh day, you're going to put, put the priests out in front. You're going to have the Ark of the Covenant in the middle, symbolizing my power and presence. And you're going to have your army behind the Ark, but I'm going to make you walk around it seven times on the seventh day. And then at the end, on the seventh, uh, the seventh walk around, the priests are going to blow their horns at the front of the column. And I want all of you guys to stand there and simply shout. And God said, and when you shout, the walls will come down. What an incredible faith challenge for the people of Israel. I mean, they couldn't believe it. What kind of wacky instructions are these? And can you imagine how they felt about the fifth or sixth day? The conversations going on in the ranks about, we gotta do it. tomorrow we got to do it seven times? This is rather humiliating. And then God says, shout, and then the walls are just going to fall down right where they are, and we get to run up over the walls, and we'll take the city, we'll run up over the rubble. This has never happened in world history, but we're going to do it. That was their little faith. We're going to do it. And sure enough, when the trumpet sounded on the seventh day, every Israelite gathered up his breath and gave out one big shout and wondered what's going to happen next. And when they shouted, the scripture says, the walls just crumbled in place. And the rubble was just laying flat and they marched. And these walls were substantial. They were 40 feet high, probably. The scripture says when, when certain spies came to look at those walls, came back, told Joshua, they, they reach up to the heavens. They were wide enough over the top for two chariots to run abreast over the top of that wall. The city was commonly viewed as unbreachable. And this miraculous miracle happens. More on that in a minute. But the walls crumble the city is taken and God's people experience his victory. Not theirs, his. What was the sense that I gave you of how this could apply to your life? I reminded you that one of the most important lessons about this great faith story of trusting God against an insurmountable challenge, this is faith when your back is up against the wall of challenge, is that God wanted to show them that in any and all of their challenges, he would fight for them and win for them. They just had to walk in that by faith. Basically, he told them, you walk in obedience to me. I work in victory for you. That's how we roll. That's how the people of God has always rolled. 
in every challenge that's too great for the people of God, we have a mighty God who says, you just live the way I've told you to live. Do what I've told you to do by faith. And I will work for you. You read all the way through your Bible, my friend, and you'll see people as a group or individuals stand and the same story is repeated time after time. Got any challenges in your life that are too big for you? Good. They're God-sized. You walk by faith, he will work in victory. I don't care what it is. Well, those were the two uh, beautiful stories that set up the third story of Rahab. Her story is in verse 31, and it occurs during the Jericho siege. That's why I reviewed this material so you can understand the setting for Rahab's decision to really trust and become a believer in the God of Israel. Verse 31, this is a story about faith when your back is up against the wall of conviction. Rahab's story is a story of one woman from a dark past and a pagan culture coming to believe in God, the one God, the only God, the God of the Bible. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Now you're saying, well, wait a minute, there's not a conversion there. Oh, yes, there is. It's woven into the story. You'll see. That's why I'm up here. I will show you part of my job. So let me give you a little background because really this is a story of something going on inside the walls of Jericho. The people of Israel had their faith outside the walls and on the seventh day they were ready to shout and for the walls to come down. But in the weeks preceding that, as Israel prepared to take Jericho, there was a faith story going on inside the walls in one home, in one life, Rahab. And verse 31 takes us into that story. Now, speaking of walls, uh, I want to let you know that Jericho has now become one of the most archaeologically excavated, boy, I worked on that all week, cities in the world. For many years, for decades and upon decades, critics of the Bible said Jericho doesn't exist it was a nice mythological city invented because it was a great little miracle story. It's false. Well, some time ago, they were proven to be false because Jericho was indeed discovered and archaeologists wanted to look and take a look at it and dig because of so many things in the story that they could disprove. And yet when they they shoved their shovels into the dirt. Every time they overturned another shovel full, they found more proof for the miraculous story in the book of Joshua. They found the city just where it was supposed to have been. They found, interestingly enough, that all the stores and the wealth of the city, the, the, the grain stores and the food stores and, and, the, and the wine uh, uh, stores and bottles and everything were all intact even though the city had been conquered. Why is that interesting? Because when you conquered a walled city in those days, you basically starved the people out. It took you years, not hours, to conquer a walled city. You just walled up the entrances and, and, and didn't let them get any more food into the city, and you starved them out. So normally they would have found a conquered city and had no food stores left. 
their food stores were full, indicating what? Indicating that they were conquered suddenly in a matter of hours. Just like the book of Joshua says. Also, they found that the entire city had been put to the torch. None of the the stores had been taken or plundered because God had told Joshua, when you conquer this city, don't take their food with you. Don't take their possessions with you. You put it all to the torch. And so they found the ashes and the signs of fire that the city had been torched to the ground, just as Joshua had said. But the most interesting find was this. They discovered that the walls of the city all around it had simply crumbled in place just the way the scripture says. Except one portion. This is so fascinating. They found one portion of the wall that had not crumbled. Why is that important? Because people's houses were in the walls of Jericho. Later on in Joshua, you'll find out that Rahab, the prostitute, had her house in the outer wall of the city. She was poorer, and the poorer people had their wall, homes in the wall, the defensive wall of the city. It's important because the scripture says that Rahab welcomed two spies into her home from Joshua's army, and in order to save their lives, she lowered them down through the window of her house, the scripture says, for it was in the wall. It's important for you to know also because in the end of our story, you'll find that God protected Rahab from the conquering army and her family was saved alone. Where were they saved? Perhaps, perhaps in that one portion of the wall that was not allowed to fall. Interesting, isn't it? Intriguing, wouldn't you say? Well, let's get into the story And we'll see how all this comes together. Again, I'll handle it just like I handle the others. I'll go over the story, and then I'll give you a sense of how it can apply to your life. The story, I've already touched on quite a bit of it, but let me go back to the very beginning. When Israel crosses over the Jordan and they're ready to start conquering Canaan, Joshua knows, as General Joshua, their military leader, that he has to figure out a way to take Jericho. So he begins to make his plans, and he wants to know what the fortifications are like, how large the army is inside, where their sentries are placed, and how to take the city. So he sends two spies to sneak into the city. You can read all about this in Joshua uh, chapters 1 through 6, the Old Testament book. He sends the two spies. They sneak into the city under the cover of night. They want to go to a place where they could blend in with other travelers, And so they go, sadly, to the place where most of the travelers of that culture went when they were visiting the city. They went to a house of prostitution. It was in the wall of the city, and it was owned and run by a prostitute named Rahab. The scripture says in verse 31 that she is Rahab, not a prostitute, but the prostitute. It is very clear here that she was involved deeply in the life of prostitution. It doesn't pull any punches about her. It doesn't try and paint her in a little better light than she was found. The Greek word is porneia, from which we get pornography. Every act imagined or pictured in pornography, Rahab lived and experienced and acted in in real life. 
She possibly owned the home and was a madam with other prostitutes that she had led into the life. She was in that point of immorality as a lifestyle. She was living that life and she was living in a place where people came to experience that life, but also travelers who just didn't want to be seen or known very well would come. And that's why these spies chose that place as a place that not a lot of people would visit. So they were laying low there. They made known their mission to Rahab. And she began to listen to their story about the God of Israel. Quickly, however, the scripture says that someone came and told the king of Jericho that he had seen two men sneak into the city at night and he'd followed them to the house of Rahab, the prostitute. And it wasn't too long before the king of Jericho sent some soldiers to the door of Rahab saying, we want it. We want, we know that spies are here. Bring them out to us. Well, Rahab, the scripture says, decided to protect the spies. And so she misled the soldiers who had come to take the spies. She hid the spies under some, some flax and some, some fabric that she had on the top of her roof there on the top of the wall. She hid the spies until the soldiers were gone. And then she told the spies where they could hide in caves on the west side of the city until the heat kind of wore down a little bit and they could get back to General Joshua. She would lower them down, the Bible says, through the window of her house, which was in the wall of the city, and they would go to safety. Now, she protected them, but she also had a request of them. And I'm going to read from Joshua 2 to describe what she asked and told the spies. Because something was going on in Rahab's life that was more than just common kindness. She was taking her life in her hands to protect these spies who were nothing to her on a human point of human plane of relationship. They were foreigners. It was wiser for her to protect her life by giving them up. Why didn't she? Because God was working in her life. They had told her that they were from the people of Israel and the God of Israel, Yahweh, the one and only God. And she had heard about this one and only God in the years before and in the days before. And she knew the army was massing, and she had come to believe in their God. How do I know this? Joshua chapter 2, verse 9. Rahab said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land, and that the fear of you has fallen upon us, and that all the inhabitants of the land, what land? Canaan, the land God said he was going to give to Israel. All the pagan inhabitants, the Canaanites, the Amorites, and, and the Jebusites and all the rest had heard about this great God and what he had done for Israel, and they were filled with fear of the God of Israel. All the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. Why? Verse, not verse 10, for we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. This is amazing. Word had spread about the Red Sea miracle. It had spread all the way to Canaan, to all these pagan people, particularly the Amorites, the most wicked of all the pagan people in that place. She was an Amorite. She had heard about God's miracle deliverance 
of the Israelites. They'd all heard of it, and nothing they had ever seen from any of their gods was like this. And so fear had fallen upon them. Well, the amazing thing was, this was 40 years after the miracle had happened. This was a new generation of Israelites, but the story of God's power stayed with these pagan people when they heard it for 40 years, and it was still terrifying them. And they knew that Yahweh, the God of the, of the Jews, was going to send his people to conquer Canaan. And they knew that if he's powerful enough to part an ocean, we have nothing that can stand against him. So they were filled with fear. They believed God more than the Israelites did. Little, a little lesson for us all. Amazing. We've heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. Verse 11. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord is your God. Now look at what she says next. The Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. You know what she's saying there? I was raised in paganism. We've got gods that live in heaven. We've got gods that live in the depths of the earth. We worship all kinds of God, gods. I was brought up worshiping about all kinds of evil, wicked, ugly gods. But I've come to believe that there is only one God and it's your God and he is the Lord. Notice she uses the word Lord. It's all caps in your Bible. That's a rendering of the word Yahweh. She takes his name and she says, I've come to believe that yours is the one and only God. She'd come to believe in the God of the scripture. In other words, she's experienced conviction over what God could do. She knows her people deserve judgment. She's turned to God for his mercy, and she has come to believe in God alone as her deliverance. She was converted. She had come to believe in the Lord God. That's why this is a story of how to decide when your back is up against the wall of conviction. She responded with conversion. What a story. That's why she helped the spies. She knew they represented the Lord God. And it was her first step to safety and freedom. Now she goes on and she says, before you go, I have a request. Verse 18. Or, or I'm, I'm sorry, verse uh, 13. Nope, I'm sorry again. Go better. For, verse 12. <laughs> Let's try this again. I'll get it. Verse 12, she continues, now then, please swear to me by the Lord, again, Yahweh, the God I've come to believe in now and your God, that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters and all who belong to them and deliver our lives from death. In other words, I know he's the only God. I know we deserve judgment. I know he's coming. I know he can't be defeated. I know the city's going to fall. And when the city falls, will you remember me because of the mercy I had on you? And please bring me safety. Figure out a way for me not to die under the judgment of God. That's a converted heart. And they tell her in verse 18, behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window of through which you let us down, the window of your house and the outer wall. So when the armies of Israel saw that, Joshua would say, when you see this, that part of the wall that's got the scarlet cord in it, don't take those people, don't put them to the sword protect them. 
And they said, when they see the scarlet cord through the window through which you let us down, you shall gather into your house your father and your mother and your brothers and all your father's household. And it sure turns out to be true because in chapter 6, when the city walls do fall, there's one portion of the wall that's standing. It's got a little scarlet cord coming out of the window and the troops of Israel see it. And in Joshua chapter 6, verse 25, the scripture says, but Rahab, the prostitute and her father's household and all who belong to her, Joshua saved alive. He fulfilled his word. He saved her alive. And she was not only saved alive physically, she was saved alive eternally. What a great story. But there's more. There's an after story to this story of faith. In verse 25 of chapter 6, it said that Rahab went on to live in Israel to this day, the the place where the book of Joshua was written, just as she had hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Erico because, because she had done that. In other words, she went and she joined herself to the people of Israel. She'd come to believe in the God of Israel. She went out with the conquering army, joined herself to the people of Israel, left her past pagan gods behind, left her past life behind. And interestingly enough, the Bible tells us that she ended up marrying an Israelite. His name was Salmon, and he was a prince of the people of Israel. So God gifted her with a husband who was one of the great leaders of the nation of Israel at that time. Not only did he gift her with a new life and a new marriage in which she could leave her pornea past behind, but she moved in into a future where God gave them a child. God blessed her with a child. His, it was a beautiful son. His name was Boaz. And if he's familiar to you, It's because he's a biblical hero in the story of the Old Testament who walked into the life of a needy and wonderful woman of character named Ruth who needed protection and who needed deliverance. And he came and married her. And Boaz and Ruth had children. And Ruth turns out to be the great, great, great grandmother of King David. You know who he was? The most illustrious ancestor in the line of Christ the Messiah. And if you look in your Bible sometime in Matthew chapter 1, verse 5, in the genealogy of Jesus Christ in the family line of the Savior of the world, you will find Rahab listed in chapter 1 and verse 5. Rahab the prostitute. Rahab the one with the past that she could never get over. God is a God of grace and mercy, and forgiveness, and restoration. Oh, what a story full of grace. It's a story of grace toward anyone who would believe. Anyone. Well, what's the sense of how this can apply to your life? Well, I'm just reminded of so many things as I look at my own needs and my own failures in my life, my own journey. Here's some things that stood out to me as I bring this to a close. I'm reminded that Rahab had an ugly, dark past history to deal with. We all do. All of us have an ugly, dark past history to deal with in the light of God's holiness, God's will, God's purity. But that past was no match for the cross. No match for the God of Israel. Notice the first thing she did in her new relationship with Yahweh was ask for mercy. That's what we do when we meet a God 
who we know is full of mercy. Remember that. Whether your past is staring at you from your non-Christian past and you're wondering if you can trust Jesus today, will he welcome you though you have a dark and stained past? Oh, yes, he will. His cross can conquer that. Or maybe you're a Christian and you've fallen into deeper sin in your Christian life than you did in your pre-Christian life. You say, wow, how do I deal with my guilt? How do I deal with my failure and my stumblings? Oh, he remains a God who is full of mercy. His mercies never cease. That must be because we need a God whose mercies never cease because my need for mercy never ceases. I don't know about you. I thought also about the fact that Rahab only had a limited knowledge of God to work with. I mean, she, she barely knew much about this God, except that he was great above all gods and that he had shown mercy and love to his people and delivered them miraculously. She just was going on secondhand knowledge. Everybody else in the city knew it too, but they decided not to believe in the God of Yahweh and they were taken in judgment. It's a beautiful story of salvation's decision, by the way. Everybody in that city of Jericho knew about the God of Israel, knew that he was the only true God, knew about his power, but knew that he'd been merciful to his people, and they could have believed. The scripture says that they didn't believe, they disobeyed. It actually says they had an opportunity. Do you realize that Jericho could have been saved? It would have been defeated, but they could have come to believe in the God of Israel and marched out with the people of Israel and joined the people of God. Instead, they were judged. Every person who has a knowledge of the saving heart of God, though it's limited knowledge, it's enough for you to trust him. And if you don't, you'll face the consequences of what you knew and disbelieved and disobeyed. You know, I meet people that I share Christ with, and it seems as I get to the end of just another conversation, one after the other, I'll converse with them, I'll, I'll reapproach, and they come up with just another question. Isn't that your experience? Sometimes I wonder if endless questions are just another way of saying, I don't believe. Where are you at today? Another thing that, remind, that I was reminded of out of this story is that you can never tell where faith will be found. You can never tell what person is being stirred by the Holy Spirit. One person is looking at the great God who's broken upon their heart and, and shown them who he is and 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 through your witness, you can never know where faith will dawn. Don't you write off any person out of God's story. Don't write anyone out of the gospel story, my friend. Don't do it. I guess most of all, I just understand that the, the greatest spiritual battle you may ever face could be your battle to receive Christ. That's the biggest thing that's on my heart about this. Rahab's story teaches us that God is going to reveal himself to you. He may do it in a time of great crisis and in a moment where you have to decide, will I turn from my life, my lifestyle, my broken beliefs, and will I trust in the God, the Lord Will I trust him for mercy and come to him for mercy? Even though it's a moment of decision, it's always a spiritual battle, my friend. Perhaps the greatest spiritual battle you may ever face could be your battle to receive Christ. 
You might be facing it alone like she did. You may just be without anybody to support you. You may be facing a time viewing this online or sitting here in this auditorium and you just, you're alone and and you're going to have to trust Christ alone. She trusted God alone and God was there. You may have a pornea past like Rahab. And you may be lied to by the enemy right now who says you've done too much, you've gone too far, you've failed too often, you've sinned too deeply. No one like you could ever come to a Christ like him. Your conscience and the, 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 the blurring of Satan in your ears may be your greatest enemy right at this moment. And I will tell you, you cannot outsend the cross of Jesus Christ. You can come. He is full of mercy, abundant in grace. God can make all those walls of deception and guilt fall down. Trust Christ today, won't you?